0: Uh, let's switch gears near now to WeWork. Talk about a company that has had a rough couple of weeks. First of all, its valuation appears to have been stressed dramatically from $47 billion to what might be something in the 10 to $15 billion range, now even the... The CEO is under pressure to resign. So let's get the latest. We bring in Shira Oviday. She's a technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Shira, it's been a tough couple of weeks for this company, for this CEO. What's the latest here? Because it looks like the board might be meeting today.
2: Yes, that is the latest that our colleagues at Bloomberg News and other news outlets have reported that the WeWork board is meeting maybe as early as today. And one of the things they may talk about is um, – removing adam newman or pressuring adam newman who's the co-founder and ceo of the company to step down from the ceo position which is uh just the latest very weird twist in what has been a very very weird corporate saga so is he being basically the fall guy here it does feel that way i mean the the thing to understand about all this is that this is ultimately there's ultimately two Players that matter in WeWork, and that is WeWork's uh, Adam Newman, the the co-founder and CEO, and Masayoshi Son, who's the head of SoftBank, which is um, WeWork's biggest outside investor. And Son, until I guess now, has been Adam Newman and WeWork's biggest backer in the face of resounding doubts from many other people, including SoftBank's own investors in its very large Vision Fund investment fund. And Masa has stood by Newman, again, Something must have changed in the in the calculus of um, Sony and SoftBank. I do not know what it is, but it's clear that I could they tell you are what turning it is.
1: forty-five well, billion to ten billion. No, that that evaluation. would do it. Yeah,
2: will do. Yeah, it. the valuation cut. I think was is probably um, the thing that would change the minds of even um, sort of idiosyncratic billionaires like Masayoshi Son.
0: So what's I mean? In reality, though, they can't force him out of the CEO spot. Can they? Doesn't he still have? Some super voting stock?
2: Yes. So I can't pretend to understand the corporate structure and what is or isn't possible, but yes, Adam Newman controls the votes in this company and he can remove the entire board. Um, (laughs) But there is also stipulation that you can see in WeWorks IPO documents that the board has the Power to remove the CEO. Now, I don't know how those two things could be in conflict. And so I don't know how to resolve those um, if it gets to that. What do you think that Adam Newman did wrong? So I don't want to put all the blame on Adam Newman. Look, this is a company that has been run in rather wild fashion for. Years. And that was enabled by all of the investors in this company, including SoftBank. And so everything that WeWork is today, which is this cash burning, maybe financially unsustainable uh, company run by a self dealing CEO. That was all information that was known and enabled by every investor in this company the last few years. And that top of that list is SoftBank. So everybody deserves blame for the company getting to the position that it is today. So let's flip it on its head. Is there anything that Adam Newman
1: brings to uh, WeWork and frankly, cult of personality among them? That would be problematic if the company was stripped of it.
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I you have to give Adam Newman credit again. It may seem baffling to those of us, those of us on the outside, but he has been a very effective pitchman for this company, both with investors um, and with other business partners and employees. So, you know, again, the, this company is what it is today because of Adam Newman both the good things and the bad things about WeWork. My question is if you if you remove Newman from if Newman is removed or he steps down from the CEO position do things really change? I mean this is now a weakened company. It, its reputation, I don't think I've ever seen a company certainly not on the doorstep of an IPO where the sentiment about it is so relentlessly negative. And in a way, removing the CEO or having the CEO step down is sort of an acknowledgement of how messed up it is. And so, I don't know what happens with or without Adam Newman in the CEO position.
0: It's interesting. I like your your thought that, you know, really uh, his behavior, the company's behavior, the company's, just the whole rise has been enabled by a whole host of investors led by SoftBank. So to me, the only thing that's changed in the last two weeks is the valuation. That's that's the only thing that that's changed. And what that does is shows that SoftBank mispriced. And the other investors, anything above 10 or $12 billion, that's on them, that's not on Adam Newman. So one can make an argument, which I'm sure the Adam Newman camp is going to make, that... He is perhaps being used as a scapegoat for what is a arguably a flawed business model and a flawed valuation, which the public markets are now shining a light upon.
2: I think that's absolutely right. That Look, this shows you some of the inherent flaws in the soft bank business model, the soft bank investment model, which is we... Pour, we, we train our cash bazookas on these companies and we make their success inevitable just by virtue of having more capital than anybody else. The downside of that, as you pointed out, is that they have so much money that valuations inherently become inflated. And the downside of that is what happens if nobody else but SoftBank agrees um, th- what this company is worth.
0: And I think what's changed in, in the private to public thing in 2019 is Uber. It just kind of changed the whole dynamic, which is if you can't convince me, public shareholder to mutual fund in Boston, that you have a path of profitability that I can value, then I have a hard time, you know, giving you the valuation you're looking for. So there's a, it's almost a pre-Uber, post-Uber time frame, And unfortunately for WeWork, they came post.
2: I think that's, uh, it's a good point. Obviously, we can't go back in time, but I do wonder if Uber hadn't gone out first and, and kind of fallen a little bit on its face, would WeWork? Would the WeWork situation be a little bit different? I would point to, remember Blue Apron from two years ago? Yep. That was a company, again, that once it went public, everybody was like, this company doesn't make sense. And then it had it took a significant valuation haircut and has continued to decline precipitously. So that shows you that Uber wasn't the first time where public investors questioned um, a highly touted company that had a lot of question marks around its business model.
1: Sure, Ovide, thank you so much uh, for the insight. Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us here in our interactive brokers studios.
0: We are joined by John Authors, Senior Editor for Bloomberg Markets, and Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. So, John, let's follow up on that wide-ranging interview that uh, Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrow just had with uh, former New York Fed Chairman uh, President uh, John um, Bill Dudley. Dudley. So, key takeaways for you as it relates to some of his discussion about the repo market. He seemed to be suggesting that kind of a short-term issue, nothing major to be concerned about.
3: Yes, I think he was definitely trying to do his bit to calm things down i think it is interesting bearing in mind that uh there's been a lot of uh anger in the last week uh about the dismissal of or the early uh enforced early retirement of simon potter who was very much regarded as bill dudley's man and who is the guy who would have been in charge of dealing with the response last week um i and who has been quoted I don't think he wanted to be quoted publicly but uh talked to B of A and Bloomberg gathered that uh that Simon Potter has been making some criticisms of the way that um the uh the Fed has handled this the New York Fed has handled this so I think he was going quite a long way out of his way to be uh to downplay the degree of conserv- of, of criticism the degree of anger that there has been in the market about uh about the New York Fed itself and its response and whether there's been something wrong in the way that uh, Williams has taken over from him. Yeah, He's being diplomatic.
1: That's, that's a really interesting point. Carl Kadana also joining us, Chief US Economist. Carl, what was your biggest takeaway?
4: Well, I think it was important to see that he wasn't raising any red flags uh, because there, there is this notion that maybe the Fed was, uh, you know, a day late and a dollar short to uh, respond to the situation. Uh, but now things are well under control. So they uh, did announce, uh, uh, you know, recurring uh, operations uh, extending beyond month end plus uh, longer term uh, operations. So that uh, really is taking a, a bazooka uh, to the problem and uh, should uh, uh, be a very solid temporary patch. Uh, what I was looking for uh, in terms of a little bit uh, more color was uh, maybe some timing about when uh, the balance sheet does uh, start to grow again. Uh, and again, we shouldn't call it QE. Uh, I wouldn't even call it QE light. Uh,
3: but it's uh, it fine, is by the way. an expansion <laughs> of the balance sheet. We need a new acronym sheet. at about this point. <laughs> yes, exactly. yes. Come on. On. Prudent
4: Reserve <laughs> <laughs> Management. When will Prudent Reserve m- PRM Prim. Okay. <laughs> okay. When, when will PRM uh, kick in, uh, and that's going to have to happen uh, relatively soon, or we are going to see these funding strains extend uh, through uh, the latter half So of, just so uh, I understand, Carl,
0: is this the permanent... Uh
4: fix for this repo issue? The the permanent fix will be expanding the reserves uh, over time, that uh, reserve management operation. What they're doing now is really a temporary patch and it should work, Mm -hmm. right? 75 billion of repos on a a daily basis uh, should uh, be enough to uh, add uh, sufficient liquidity back into the system. They could certainly expand that if they needed to. uh, Unlikely uh, that that would actually become a problem. Uh, But uh, the the reality is uh, uh, relatively soon, uh, before year end for sure, uh, the Fed is going to have to embark on this balance sheet expansion. And the reason for that is, uh, as the economy expands, uh, the banking, sister, uh, banking system has to keep a pace with it. And that means that reserves have to grow along with economic growth.
1: So I want to shift gears a little yeah. bit because I'll tell you what my biggest takeaway was. I thought that actually probably one of the most interesting things that he said is that uh, the risk is not necessarily right now looking like deflation. It's looking like he's seeing a little bit more of a pickup in inflationary trends, not the risk, but that he's actually yes. seeing the trend go in the opposite direction. And John, I thought that was interesting yes. uh, because it's kind of counter to what the market has been implying.
3: It's drastically counter to what the market's been implying. I actually nervously took a quick look at the break evens while you were in the, yeah. in the last minute and and, and they're down again. today. Yes, it? that's um, what I'm saying. Uh Last week's core CPI numbers, okay, the Fed cares more about PCE than core CPI, but they were up. They were the highest they've been off the top of my head in a decade. Um, it does certainly look as though you're finally getting the feed through with about the kind of lag you would have expected from all the uh, jolt of adrenaline that was uh, that was delivered during the tax, uh, tax cut of uh, 18 months or so ago. And that, in turn does give you a very ample ample explanation for why the Fed at this point is so in such a different place from the market. I think the other possibility, uh, and this is one of the things that Powell arrived really trying to make a big signal that he was going to be different from his predecessors, is that uh, he didn't buy that US monetary policy had as big an impact on the rest of the world as others had said. if you are looking at the rest of the planet, particularly at the Eurozone, you are much more likely to be really worried about deflation than if you're just looking at the US where it looks like we have a, uh, not by the comparison with the 70s and 80s, but we have a minor league inflation problem booming here, which suggests we shouldn't be cutting rates.
0: So Carl, what do you think as it relates to, you know, just what John was saying about inflation, where we might be, what we've experienced with the repo market in the last week, Where do you think the Fed is right now as they think about the next several meetings?
4: Sure. Well, I think the Fed is, uh, and again, uh, Bill Dudley suggested, there's not as much division on the committee as maybe looking at the dot plot would uh, otherwise have you uh, believe. Uh, The Fed is very much uh, looking at uh, taking insurance out to extend a record-long economic expansion, Uh, and that means that they're watching the the trade uh, negotiations very carefully, and if we do see a significant escalation of tariffs in mid-October as scheduled, uh, and more follow-through in December uh, as scheduled, then the Fed is going to have have to act more forcefully. So right now, uh, even the uh, most dovish doves on the committee Mm. are signaling uh, a willingness for just one additional hike. There were seven dots, uh, excuse me, cut. Uh, There were seven dots uh, calling for a a cut uh, by year end. Uh, I think that uh, that's going to continue to drift downward uh, if we see those additional tariffs uh, come into play. And so my team's view Mm. uh, is we'll see a rate cut in October, end of October, uh, and another follow through uh, in uh, mid-December. And we can look at what's happening in the market here. Right, it was uh, risk off in August. Uh, September was a little bit of renewed optimism, and now as uh, October looms, it looks like we're going back into a risk off mode. Yields are down, and really, the the compelling uh, issue for the Fed uh, towards the year end uh, is going to be uh, trade headwinds stiffening, uh, and also uh, the Fed having to cut further to uninvert the yield curve.
1: So mm. I'm just curious uh, going forward. First of all. Whether Bill Dudley has any impact on the Federal Reserve at this point, given the fact he is no longer with it. I mean, how much <laughs> do former Fed members and leaders have on the current Fed, John?
3: It depends on which former leader it is, evidently. <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think Stanley Fisher, mm-hmm. who, apart from anything else, wrote the t- literally wrote the textbook that most current Fed, Fed governors read when they did their original economics degrees. I read Dornbush and Fisher when I did my economics degree. As he's come out um beginning to suggest that negative rates and helicopter money are things that can at least be considered, that makes, which is not something I remember thinking was even remotely a possibility from my reading of Dornbush and Fisher all those years ago, that that's very... Influential, he's beginning to create, give them permission to go to a space that they didn't really previously intellectually be like a go. But that's Stan Fisher. Bill Dudley, I doubt is as influential as Stan Fisher. That said, the New York Fed is unquestionably first among equals. The New York Fed governor is always on, uh, gets a vote in the FOMC. Uh, the New York Fed always votes with. The governor Paul Volcker moved to the moved to the big the hot seat from being from running the New York Fed. Previous New York Fed governors do matter more. Um, final point: I, I it's very unusual. It was very unusual to to see the Fed itself really feel the need to say no, this is wrong. To Bill Dudley's original um, op-ed for Bloomberg Opinion, which we are. Delighted, he wrote for us. We're very happy. He chose us, as a, and we were delighted to continue that that relationship that he built out, built out, that he uh, fostered debate through us. But it was quite interesting that you, they really did say no. We don't agree with our former New York chair. Here. Just,
4: just jumping uh, onto what uh, John said there, uh, I you know I think there was an important uh, two two important uh, observations. So one uh, as a uh, Relates to the ongoing uh, situation in the repo market. Uh, I think that uh, Bill Dudley has tremendous sway because uh, the Dudley Potter Fed, you know, was there during the crisis and really uh, understands how these things uh, operate. And uh, you know, he was uh, way out in front talking about uh, banks, uh, you know, the the reserves uh, being at a higher level uh, post crisis and where we were uh, uh, pre crisis. So uh, number one, he has tremendous authority on that front. Uh, mm-hmm. And number two, uh, he did uh, throw negative rates under the bus in his yes. discussion. The hurdle is very yes. very. very that,
1: that will definitely get to that. Karl Rokadana, Chief U.S. Economist at a later conversation, unfortunately. Thank you so much for being with us. And, of course, uh, our sincere thanks to John author Senior Editor for Bloomberg Markets, both joining us in our interactive broker studios. In this current era of technology, it really is the STEM careers that are in the front and center uh, that are most needed, as well as uh, often the highest paid. There is a question, why are there so few women who are entering the field? Joining us now to discuss this, Corliss Murray, Senior Vice President and Head of Engineering at Abbott, uh, based in Chicago, to talk about a new blueprint that they have come up with to get more girls into the STEM fields. Before we get started on that though, Can you just give us a sense of what it means to be Senior Vice President and Head of Engineering at Abbott?
5: Uh, Yes, Lisa, and thank you so much for the opportunity to to speak to your audience today. Um, I'm responsible for um, the corporate quality engineering and uh, regulatory organizations, and our team supports all of Abbott's businesses worldwide. And we do that through a number of efforts, such as um, it could be everything from structural and architectural support to special technical areas. Uh, including governance of quality policies and procedures and regulatory strategy.
0: So, Colas, give us a sense. You know, we, we, we know the numbers in terms of uh, uh, women in STEM uh, underrepresented. Give us a sense of kind of what Abbott is thinking about in terms of its blueprint for, you know, getting uh, young women uh, involved in STEM.
5: Well, I think one of the things that we have found very consistently, and it lines up with other research that has been conducted. And that is that many, if not most girls, don't enter these fields because of lack of exposure and lack of role models and encouragement. And so for us, being a science-based company, it is essential for us to be able to bring uh, women to help with the diversity of ideas and innovation, as well as representing the markets, quite frankly, in which we, we operate. Um, and so it, it's, uh, it's a part of our foundation and a part of our talent focus Um, at all levels in the organization. And so, but you have to begin with building that pipeline and making certain that we're reaching these young women early in life um, so that they can get a feel for what it is that that they can do as far as their careers may go.
1: Okay, so this has been a big question, which is how do you exactly counter it? And the idea that you came up with a blueprint, uh, a detailed playbook for successful high school uh, girls going into an internship program. Can you give a sense of what the playbook is?
5: So the playbook is actually um, built similar off our college intern program. And, and what we do is we uh, work with based on criteria to select students to come into the program. We work with high schools that uh, they have curriculums that are Project Lead the Way or the International Baccalaureate Program. And these are programs that um, would make sure that these young people are getting some of the higher advanced levels of science and math exposure. Um, We then take that, bring it into our organization and work with assignment managers. Assignment managers are individuals that actually work in the professions um, day in and day out. So they could be cybersecurity experts. They could be, um, you know, mechanical engineers, architects, civil engineers, electrical engineers, biomedical engineers. And then we actually um, develop assignments that are real projects that are done by these engineers and others uh, like them. And we create these assignments for the students and we expose them to it. And the blueprint goes into a lot of detail on everything around how to work and partner with a school, to how to work and identify assignments, to what we call an intern week where they're exposed to other things such as how to conduct yourself in a professional environment, Um, you know, basic business ethics and things of that nature uh, so that they're well-rounded.
0: So, Corliss... um... Abbott, that is a, you know, it's a global healthcare company. I'm sure lots of demand for engineering, math-type folks at your company. How do you go about at Abbott trying to ensure that you attract the best and brightest uh, and, and, you know, get a fair representation in your workforce? Because I know, uh, I'm sure a lot of these jobs that you have are very uh, important, And uh, but do you find you getting the right talent?
5: We are getting the right talent, and we are a company that people – want to be a part of, you know, when when you look at not only the technical work that we do, but you look at the environment that we have uh, where we've been recognized for, you know, be it working mothers, working women, uh, be it, you know, scientists, you know, um, innovation, we've been recognized in a lot of different uh, venues. And so when you combine um, the total environment along with uh, an environment that encourages development of people Um, These young people, we find, they're excited about the technologies that we create. They're excited about the people that they work with because uh, the mentors and the assignment managers that work with them love developing others, and, and they want these young people to be successful, and they're excited to share their professions with them and help them to have a better indication of what they potentially could do. So I think that Abbott creates a holistic environment where people want to be a part of our organization. So we get our fair share of talent, if you will, to come into this organization.
0: Corliss Murray, thank you so much for joining us. Corliss is the Senior Vice President and Head of Engineering at Abbott, talking about uh, getting young women into STEM-related fields.
1: It was a tremendous story to read. The concept of 150,000 tourists stranded on overseas beaches and in vacation hotspots. The UK government is now trying to get back to the country in what is being called the largest repatriation in peacetime history. This all comes after the collapse of tour operator Thomas Cook Group. Uh, my question is, Paul... Uh, Why did this come as such a huge surprise and shock suddenly to leave so many people (laughs) stranded? And here to answer that question is Richard Weiss, reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Frankfurt. So, Richard, what is the answer to that question?
6: Well, the honest answer is it didn't come as a surprise uh, to those who follow the company closely. Of course, the timing was a surprise that this happened at in the morning local time last night. But I just want to add a little bit of context. As you say, this is the biggest repatriation since uh, the Second World War. There's 150,000 Brits stranded abroad uh, at this point in time. So the British government is tasked with bringing about 20,000 people home every day. So if you take a 747 jumbo jet, which seats about just under 500, that's 40 jumbo jets every day for about a week to be organized by a government which doesn't have a fleet of such size for such a task. So that gives you a feel for uh, what the Brits are undertaking as we speak.
0: So it's, uh, again, I have to admit, I really don't understand how this happened and how I just can't take my ticket that I guess is no longer valid and maybe get another airline to honor it and fly back home. But is that not an option for these people?
6: Uh, The good thing is that uh, in Europe, for a lot of these things, there's consumer protection. In the UK, it's called ATOL. It essentially means in a case like this, the government will step in and organize a transport and you even have to pay for it. And if you're lucky, you can even stay for the remainder of your holiday at your hotel. Of course, at the moment this happens, like last night, this causes shock and awe with affected people. But in the end, most of the Brits on vacation at the moment will probably be able to spend their days on the beaches there. And they will get home taken, possibly even by the same aircraft that they flew into their destination with, just with a difference that the government charges it from whoever owns it. Lessors most likely um, to fly them home, and that money comes from a fund that all tour operators have to pay into.
1: So, Richard, I I hate being pedantic here, but I want to go back to the two a.m. filing here uh, or (laughs) or announcement. I mean, what transpired that led to such a sudden shuttering of the entire operation in any way, with no contingency plan whatsoever to continue uh, to sort of make things go smoothly until the orderly wind down of the company and its operations could be completed?
6: It sounds very dramatic that this happened tonight at 2 a.m. And that's yes. what actually did happen. However, there's a strong rationale behind it. When a company is bankrupt or has to be liquidated, like in this case, the question is, where are the assets and who owns them? So the administrator has to go in basically count everything and see what can I ma- turn into cash so if I ground an airline and Thomas Cook is a huge airline with more than 100 jets in the leisure sector that's one of the biggest airlines across Europe when I ground an airline at 2 in the morning chances are most of the jets are going to be at their home airports Meaning in the UK this is a UK company so the insolvency administrator will be able to actually get their hands on the jets and sell them later on so there's some practical reasons behind this timing.
0: So this is a, you know, Thomas Cook has been around for 178 years. What happened to this company to push it to where we are today?
6: Well, um, if you go back and look into the history books, it was uh, founded by a preacher man who wanted to keep uh, people in Victorian England from drinking. So it's actually a fascinating history. The problem is in the last 15 or 20 years or so, they haven't been quite up to speed with the changes in the industry as the low cost carriers emerged also across Europe and ticket prices continue to fall over the last couple of years at the same time. Online rivals, both travel agents and pure online travel agents, as we know them in booking.com, for example, pushed into this market and uh, squeezed the margins that were already slim and highly seasonal. It's a business where in the summer the money comes in and in the winter you have to pay the hotels that you buy your beds from in bulk. So it's very seasonal and you have to be able to withstand shocks, for example, across Europe. A lot of the important destination countries are Tunisia, Egypt, Turkey... And all these countries had political turmoil in the past couple of years, and some of them even had incidents that shut the entire countries down for a couple of months out of a perspective from a tour operator. So that means you may have spent money on sending hundreds of thousands of guests there, and in the end, you can't. So if you don't have a big financial buffer, this is a very tough business to be in.
0: Richard Weiss, thank you so much uh, for bringing this story to us. Just extraordinary. uh, Richard Weiss, uh, Bloomberg News, uh, based in frankfurt thanks for listening to the bloomberg PL podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm paul sweeney i'm on twitter at PT Sweeney.
1: i'm lisa abramowitz i'm on twitter at lisa abramowitz one before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide on bloomberg radio